Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea. And this week, we're coming at you with a metallic episode, because oh, yeah. that's the theme of the week. Not only are we going to be talking about the latest album from Metal Stalwarts, Metallica, of which we have an entire two-part discography episode dedicated to that we made way back at the very beginning of this podcast, but is quite entertaining if you would like to know our perhaps more in-depth thoughts on each record individually, including things like Lulu. But today we elected to talk about them in a uh, a broader sense, because not only is 72 seasons out, it is also the 20th anniversary of their classic record, Saint Anger, mm-hmm. of course. So and, uh, to me, this is like an opportunity to discuss classic <laughs> record, Saint Anger. Well, it is. It's a classic, you know, <laughs> in a very particular sense. But like this, it's to just, me, I'm not. I'm not denying it. It just. This to me, I think, it just We're through the fucking looking glass. Technically, the anniversary is not till June, but I mean, this dovetailed too nicely. These two events, the anniversary of that album, the release of a new Metallica album, especially considering a new Metallica album, you get one per decade now, basically. And these two things were so close together, I thought we have to capitalize on this. We have to, because I think when I was thinking about my thoughts about the new Metallica album, and we'll save that for our last segment of the episode, when I was thinking about my thoughts on the new Metallica album, so much of it was thinking we're just kind of doubling back to what is the point of metallica in 2023 and what could metallica do to could metallica even possibly make a good album in 2023 or is that sort of something that you know i think there's interesting ways to potentially address that and i think we might each have distinct perspectives so even if I think just based on what I already know, uh, we're going to be fairly aligned in our thoughts on the new album. But we'll get to that. We'll have an interesting conversation about Metallica, I think, the biggest metal band in the world. But before we get to that, before we look backwards, let's talk about some of the latest events in music news. And there has been one story this week that has dominated all discussion, that has completely taken over not just music Twitter, but his kind of more pop culture Twitter in general. And that is the disastrous events surrounding Frank Ocean's performance at Coachella this year. <laughs> it is truly a, a spiral of a story. I mean, it is something that the more you read about what happened and didn't happen, the more you kind of get an insight into the way in which people treat artists in the current era, the way in which artists approach their own work in the current era, and the way in which some of our biggest, the way in which what we expect from some of our biggest artists dictates how we respond to the things that they do and the way we talk about them online. All this kind of interesting, really interesting things, I think, that have really come to light as a result of this particularly underwhelming performance of frank oceans at coachella i mean frankly we were lucky there was a performance yeah. at all and there was a lot of conversation prior to frank's performance that people were, were hesitant to believe he would even turn up uh even though frank had been confirmed and announced as the 2023 coachella headliner three years ago so this had been in cooking in the pipeline Jesus. for a long time. He hasn't performed live in six years, I believe. That was the other big, you know, aspect of context sort of circling around this and, and building up people's hype to see him. So com- those two things combined, the fact he hadn't performed live in six years and he had been signed up to headline Coachella for three years, 
really created this era of anticipate anticipation and hesitation and dread and what's an interesting thing about it to me is how the last sort of three or four years of like major music artists acting like divas letting their fans down kind of creating this air of unpredictability around what they'll do and this cultivating this sort of mystique and really playing on the aspect of stand devotion that a lot of the that you see basically in a lot of major music fan bases these sorts of things with artists like kanye with other huge massive pop artists as well these ideas that fans will do anything fans will excuse anything fans will create an aura of inescapable mystery and magic around the most innocuous of things and this is something that artists have done for you know as long as art has existed as they have played on the idea of creating as much hype and creating as much sort of conversation while doing as little as possible but anyway i think though that the the, the the various sorts of stories we've seen over the years of, you know, albums being delayed, albums not coming out, performances being disastrous, Kanye, Playboy Cardi, whoever, over the years really created a kind of breeding ground for Frank Ocean to completely sort of capsize his cultural cachet and I guess his, <laughs> the extent, the, the, the passion, devotion of his fan base, basically. Isn't it amazing that, in like the 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 cultural fallout of odd future that Tyler the Creator has essentially gone on to eclipse the I'd say not not like hugely or anything but like as like a as an artist as a person in the world of music culture Tyler is easily like the one with the biggest cachet with the most success with the like both critically artistically with people popularity wise and he also has a reputation for putting on amazing live shows and then you have Frank and Tyler who spent like the first half a decade of his existence saying the most cancelable shit of all time on Twitter. Like just, you can go and look up all of the insane bullshit he said. And then Frank, who's just this meek little quiet bisexual soft boy presence. And meanwhile, you fast forward to today and everyone is just like fucking put dead. Like we, we need, we need to kill Frank Ocean. And then everybody's just like, yeah, Hey Tyler, release five more uh, songs on the deluxe edition of uh, call me. If you get lost, we'll stream it. Thank you, King. Well, it's so interesting. I think the dynamic between Tyler and Frank, ever since the Odd Fusion days, Odd Fusion, Odd Future days, has been really interesting. It has been really fascinating because they're kind of polar opposites mm -hmm. in a lot of respects. You know, Tyler was the kind of enfant terrible, you know, the kind of provocative, provocative artist who's saying stupid shit and doing stupid things, but getting a lot of attention for it in those early days as well. Like, you know, music oh, yeah. magazines. He, he was getting basically as much, if not more, you know, sort of airtime and critical attention than Frank was. Then, of course, Channel Orange happened, and Frank kind of had his massive critical moment as well, became this artist that had basically ascended to the top of the mountain with one record. 
um while tyler kind of had a sort of slow sort of trotting slide downhill with wolf and cherry boy well, you, you gotta skip to flower boy that's the moment yeah. you know like wolf is kind of on the edge of being that sort of thing for him but then flower boy happens and then his ascendancy is just fully broadcast well it's 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 not it's like it's more complicated than that though because it's like one of it's like a it's not a heel turn because it's the inverse of a heel turn right it's like it's the reverse heel yeah turn, yeah where the artist like capitalizes on the you know the attention that they've garnered over the years but do, do it does it in a way where they completely invert all of the reasons why they got that attention and the personality they'd cultivated and completely essentially reinvent themselves and i what tyler has done over the last 10 years is like kind of unprecedented to me in a weird way like the, the particular yeah. path he's taken the way that he's maintained cultural relevance and conversation while having this completely bizarre trajectory throughout all that is really really interesting whereas frank ocean you know and the thing tyler of course tyler has done all that because he's an attention whore like he absolutely thrives on being talked about on being a part of the conversation whereas frank is kind of the inverse of that like he's reclusive he doesn't particularly seem to enjoy the spotlight he doesn't particularly seem to enjoy making music it's not very clear what frank ocean enjoys and that has created an air of mystique (laughs) around him and with you know because of how huge and how widely beloved and how kind of era defining blonde was like that 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 created that in combination with frank's bizarre mystique kind of cemented him as this sort of mystical figure basically that people treated with this reverence like oh, we could never really fully understand him and, and we, we mustn't sort of like, question him and... it's like frank is the george harrison and tyler is both paul mccartney and john lennon at the same time yeah well it's like yeah and, and so frank has this air of total unknowability around him and that in combination with releasing two of the most seminal and era-defining records of the 2010s kind of made him feel untouchable and kind of almost gave him, again, and I'm talking about in the cultural landscape, but almost sort of gave him this sort of godlike sort of aura, basically, the sense with which oh, yeah. we can never know him and we could never presume to know him, but we know that when he will emerge and decide to show himself to us, he will basically change our lives in some irrevocable way for the better. And this was kind of like, that could that would that would be a very difficult thing to maintain that was the kind of status that frank ocean achieved with blonde and built into that status is this idea that in order to keep this up you're essentially the stakes for what you do are upped to this ridiculous extent that you could maybe meet them once twice more maybe but eventually in order to maintain this incredible benchmark of expectations that have been set upon you you would reach a ceiling at some point and you would need to essentially you know for completely different reasons but you'd essentially need to do something like what tyler did where you'd have to completely reinvent yourself but because frank ocean doesn't really seem to have much investment in himself as an artistic personality he doesn't really particularly seem clear, seem keen to reinvent himself. He doesn't seem keen to kind of reassert himself or to kind of place himself in the current cultural narrative. He kind of just is there. And he kind of seems as though he's beholden to what's expected of him. He's beholden to his obligations, but he doesn't particularly want to be a part of it all. And so all of this, and that this was true before Coachella. 
And all of this kind of creates the perfect breeding ground for an absolute disaster, basically, for for people who have increasingly over the years because of this, because of Frank's lack of willingness to kind of kowtow and play along with this, you know, pedestal that he's been put on, and especially with the continual release of, you know, songs of varying quality, bizarre public appearances, all kinds of weird things that he's done. It's created the situation where essentially he has put himself in an impossible position in terms of maintaining his status basically and in some senses it seems as though frank is okay with that and maybe it's in some to some degree you could read what happened at coachella as frank just kind of embracing that downfall and saying you know i don't really care and i kind of don't really want to be loved to this extent anymore you know, there's lots of different ways you can interpret what happened. And if anyone doesn't know the specifics of it, essentially, he was late to perform. He basically he had a whole ice setup and like an ice state skating ice rinks setup built for millions of dollars with hundreds of of skaters trained that he basically threw out the last minute. Refused to stream his show uh, live, which was which in the current era is kind of you know a big no no essentially because and a lot of i hate poor people memes going around because of that particular decision you know and he was lip syncing his songs and there were some songs where it wasn't even clear if he was performing at all you know he wasn't visible uh... on stage you could only see him on a screen and even then he looked as though he was in a borderline catatonic state he of course just recently pulled out of the second weekend which seemed almost inevitable but still felt like a real fuck you when it happened replaced by blink 182 which i'll get to that in a minute um and then it was like he he said that oh actually the reason why my performance was so underwhelming was the fact that i broke my ankle earlier in the week which made no sense i mean even if that's true why would that only come out now why would you not why would you only change your performance at the very there, last there moment? are videos of him like clearly like jumping up and down and shit and it's like that motherfucker did not break his ankle bullshit and all of this to me feeds into this theory that i have that frank essentially is maybe to a certain degree purposefully kind of tanking his own hype and trying to basically destroy any pillar that he stands on and i can understand why you'd want to do that it's just that's my per personal pet theory is that Frank Ocean's been kind of put in an impossible position culturally. And so he kind of just wants to dismantle everything that he has. The downside to that, of course, being that it's still, I don't know. There's still this sense with which everyone wants Frank Ocean LP three, right. Uh, or four or five, I guess, yes. depending on how you fucking count them. Everyone wants the <laughs> follow up to blonde, right. Everyone wants this new mystical new album. One of the big, you know, narratives around Frank's Coachella performance is, oh, will he announce the album? Oh, will he release the album at his Coachella show? Wait, he's going to release the album, guys. That was the big thing that was happening is that the, the, the Frank feed. Ocean Reddit was on copium for like 72 straight It was a hours. real, it was a real so throwback to, to 2017 when Kendrick played Coachella. It was like, tonight's the night. We're getting Kendrick's Nation. Kendrick's going to drop Nation, guys. <laughs> it was the same thing. And like, yeah, he did, I think, I don't know what he said, but apparently he did allude to a new album existing, so maybe we'll get that in the next yes. fucking generation. So there is generation. new music on the way. But 
I, I do think that, that Frank, I do think sure that Frank is. understands that he's in basically an impossible position with this new record. Like the 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 level to which it would need to be, like how good it would need to be for his fans. Again, I'm talking from his fans' perspective and from cultural, you know, the level of it's not even about how good it needs to be. It's the fact is that you have released two era-defining records, you know, especially Blonde, like an album that is like epochal, basically, of an entire period. The only way to follow that up and, and, and maintain expectations is to be able to define a whole new era, which is an impossible standard, you know? And so I fully expect that whatever Frank's new record is, will be thoroughly disappointing to basically 90% of his fan base because that's the situation that Frank is in. And that I think maybe underpins some of his decisions with regards to kind of this laissez-faire attitude to his whole career, basically. There's no further disconnect in modern music that I have than I do with Frank Ocean and Frank Ocean's music in that I love his music, him as an artistic presence. I'm I'm glad he's working. I'm glad he exists. Net, like Riley said, net good. But like as a, a figure, he's too annoying to pay attention to. Like all of his fans, they're like consistently playing into the, the discourse and trying to build up hype or like all this stuff. It's like, this is like i'm 25 man i don't have the mental fortitude to be like th this can't happen to me anymore i don't i don't have the <laughs> level of energy that you all do to to constantly like build up excitement for this and then be demolished because of disappointment because of whatever rumor or expectation that you have like i don't have that level of expectation on fucking anybody like i'm the kind of person who's terrified that fucking like the next phoebe bridgers album is going to cause you know music critic pitchfork fucking uh, annihilation world ending explosion in terms of discourse so i don't really associate myself with the the frank ocean stands even though i am a big fan of who his would, music. Who would, or, who but i can't no i mean ugh, no absolutely not and it's funny that you compared him to kanye because i feel like they're in opposite like I mean kanye's in a very different place right now but like <laughs> germany <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to them releasing new music with kanye he's almost so all-encompassing that no matter what he makes and no matter how bad it is there is going to be a huge swath of people who are just there day one ready to defend whatever fucking creative decision that man makes because they, it doesn't matter. Like every single week you can be on music Twitter and see people Ooh. like with a fucking tweet prompt with a picture of Jesus is King saying like, it's time we all admit that this album is underrated. Like th that kind of shit happens all the time with that man. Oh, it's not overrated. That's, you know what I meant. I do. It's not even that we're saying that Frank can't come out with another great album or still doesn't have great music in him. It's just that the world at large is primed to receive whatever this is going to be with an inevitable amount of disappointment. And I like as somebody who loves and has been listening to Blonde forever, I don't know what he can do as an artist to reinvigorate himself. This is, I think, a narrative that's true of basically any artist who's as big as um, Frank or Tyler or uh, Kanye or or anyone like that, is that the longer your career goes on, the the less 
appeal you will naturally have to general audiences the less your narrative will matter to general audiences the less you'll be a part of the front of pop culture past your moment because that is the way things happen so as your career goes on into those later stages past those big moments of your ascendancy where you mattered to the whole world and the whole world was talking about you the work you do becomes more and more insular becomes more and more about yourself and becomes more and more specifically for the audience of people who want to hear that so it becomes for a more targeted audience. So basically whatever Frank does at this point and, and any artist like him, it's true of Kanye's later work as well. Essentially it's designed mm -hmm. and it is really primarily only going to appeal to the people who already have this deeply, this deep investment essentially in the artist as a person in the artist as a personality in the artist and what they have to say about themselves basically. And so whatever Frank does next, whatever Kanye does next, that will appeal to no one more than to the fan base, than to the people who are that invest in that narrative. And yeah, they'll have the whole thing where, oh, this is disappointing. This is me. This is whatever. This is what happened. But there's always, you know, the tide always swings with those people. Six months later, it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Right. And that's the nature this of being was underrated. And that's the nature of being an artist at that stature at that stage in your career is that you stop trying to be, I mean, if you have any sense really, or if you have any self-awareness about yourself, you stop trying to be the biggest thing in the world and you just accept and become comfortable being yourself and doing the things that you feel are true to who you are. And also being more engaged as well in your audience as well, because your core audience and your core fan base will matter to you more, the less that you are relevant in the, in the wider landscape. And so that I think is the direction you're going to be heading in with Frank. And that I think is interesting because Blonde is his most successful and most well-known and most sort of important album, but that is a deeply intimate record. That's a deeply weird mm -hmm. album. That's an album that you listen to and it tells you a lot about Frank and a lot about his mind state and a lot about his experiences. And a lot of the way, reasons why people connect to that record is the sense of intimacy and revelation on it. Um, so that is Frank's shtick already. I think it's only fair to say that he will kind of continue heading down that road, most likely, and that people in general will move away from Frank because nothing will capture the novelty of experiencing that with Blonde. It'll never be the kind of thing he can do for the first time again. And so the target audience, yeah, shift, that's it. The people who are receptive to it will that that will that will narrow, and you know eventually. It's kind of happened with Kendrick last year as well. It's just inevitable. It's part of the whole thing. It's part of the cycle, basically. Um, the most unpredictable and crazy thing for Frank to do right now would be to do a kind of scissor thing where he just does this kind of, deliberately tries to make this hit album, basically, which I would, I would be very intrigued to see if he kind of tries to do a damn that sort of That might be the smartest approach for him. Like, we know he can do it, too. I mean, you go back and listen to stuff on Channel Orange, and it's just like, yeah, this, you know, if, it, if some of these songs, if they were a single that dropped today, this could get radio play. Like, absolutely. He's capable that, of it. That would be an interesting thing. Although I just don't know if Frank could do it. I don't know if Frank would have would be able to do something like that. But we'll see. It's an interesting thing to think about. And yeah, I I enjoyed this entire shit show for being something to gawk at and gawk at. And I am interested to see 
how it ages, how the public perception of Frank ages, because it seemed as though, you know, things were going from bad to worse for him in terms of the way that people were talking about him. But it's typical internet shit where oh, it's, yeah. like, it's like you can't really presume much of this to have a shelf life at all. It will probably all just melt away uh, within a year or certainly by the time you get a new album. But it is interesting to think about. My take on this is that in two two more weeks, nobody's even going to remember that this happened. And if somebody brings it up, the response will be, oh, yeah, that sucked. And then whatever happens next as a result of, you know, an album or lack thereof will be <laughs> uh, something that was going to happen regardless of this whole Coachella incident. Because I don't know, I can't. <sighs> I guess it's become the norm now, but I can't wrap my mind around an artist not live streaming their festival performance and a fan base going, wow, you must hate poor people. <laughs> oh, no, you, you'll have to save up money and go see well, an artist like everyone else. I think the people who were there who paid to go to, to Coachella specifically to see Frank would have more justification of being angry in that way. Because he yes, did. absolutely, yeah. but also fuck them too. They're a cold <laughs> chill. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> the music conversation and artistic conversation moves so quickly that you're kind of right that whatever happens next was already kind of preordained. This is just sort of a stopgap in the middle of what will inevitably happen next anyway. So it, it is very strange to exist in this kind of transient phase where we just don't know what'll happen. And like the next Frank Ocean album, even if it is like somehow as big as Blonde or Channel Orange, like it will, it'll be like the Kendrick album where that is an album people were looking forward to for fucking years. Kendrick is like the biggest artist in music. His appeal is everywhere. Everyone was waiting for it and damn set him up perfectly in terms of this overwhelming success. He got a fucking Pulitzer. And then a month after Mr. Morale came out, everybody was talking about the album that came out the next week. That's just how music is these days. It, it has, has not nothing even, to do with the music it's, actual it's, quality. Yeah, it's not even a reflection of, of the music, right? That's just the, the no, increasing... No, not at all. Because like everything that happens, whether it's Frank Ocean, Coachella, whatever, it is it exists within that moment, and it is talked about, and it is discoursed, and it becomes this heavy, saturated discussion point, and then it is gone. And that we're, we're kind of basically living in an era where more than at any point in history, everything that happens is discrete. Everything that happens is separate. Everything that happens is one thing in a bubble that the bubble pops and it basically might as well never have happened. You know, every single event, everything, there's no like linearity in our timeline anymore of events and of history and of life. Like everything is just, you know, once it happens, it's compartmentalized, it's put into this box. And then maybe six months later, you might be like, I hey, remember that thing that happened, but it's not, there's no sense Jeez. of everything, of anything existing on a continuum anymore, which is fascinating. I just want to point out how this conversation about Frank Ocean's shitty Coachella performance has morphed <laughs> into how the linearity of time has come unstuck in a post COVID pandemic world. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's just, if you follow any conversational point, Morgan, to its end point, no matter what you're talking about, that is where you'll end up. <laughs> yeah, because there is no end oh, point. Jesus. That, that is, Jesus. you know, we, we exist. Starts. Conversation is a funnel. 
You know, you could start at any of these places, you know, so many possibilities of things to talk about. And you go down the funnel, you talk about it more and more and more, and you're just converging to the single central point, which is we are fucked. We are all going to die. Yeah. Some big musical announcements slash releases this week that I want to talk about, just completely move on from that. Um, very me core. Certainly a band that I don't think either of you two have gotten into, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did, if you really, really enjoyed them. But legendary indie rockers 12 Rods have announced their first album in 21 oh, yeah. years. It's called If We Stayed Alive. They released a single called My Year. This is going to be my year. And the, yeah, this came out of the fucking blue, basically, because this band have been an actor for a long time. I think Connor and I, who are both huge fans of this band, were maybe discussing earlier this year, maybe there were rumblings that maybe they might be doing some shows or something, but certainly weren't expecting a new album, certainly weren't expecting it to be announced, you know, and then, okay, it's out in July this year. And yeah, the new single was great. Uh, 12 Rods are certainly a band that have fallen out of the conversation, but I think only because they've been inactive for so long. There's a lot to what they are and their whole shtick in the late 90s and early 2000s that I think would connect with a lot of younger people nowadays. It's incredibly neurotic. It's incredibly LGBTQ, question mark. Basically, it's the dismemberment plan if the songs were more openly about struggling with your sexuality and basically about how that defines every aspect of your existence like there are certainly dismemberment plan songs that are about, about that but dick. but 12 rods is just more broadly a band about the fact that you know my my dick is the main source of suffering in my life basically and that's the whole thing the uh, most relatable song topic of all time yeah that that is every 12 rods song is, is the dick my dick is the source of all of my suffering Another return, although certainly not one that is from a band that had been away for very long, but it's a return that feels momentous for very different and ultimately much sadder reasons. We had a an announcement of a new Foo Fighters album this week and the release of a new single with it as well. Morgan, do you want to talk a little bit about the new Foo Fighters single and, and what you think we should expect from their new record? Yeah, I think this new record is going to be interesting for a variety of reasons. I was kind of surprised to hear like how much this first single rescued sounds like a cut off of in your honor. Um, like it's a very yeah. particular flavor of foods that we haven't really seen. in I don't know, probably since then, at least echo silence, patience and grace. There's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with this song and is going to come with this album but it just it it felt like coming home mm. in a really yeah. gratifying way. So like taking stock yeah. and trying to imagine and envision what the future is going to look like. Of course, with the unspoken context being Taylor Hawkins passing. The record's called But Here We Are. It's out in early June, I think. The song's great. It is, you know, it's intense. What's interesting yeah. about this album announcement as well, and, and I may just be missing information here, but as far as I can tell. We had the announcement of the album, release of the single, but there's very little information about what we can expect. Like, I don't think there's any clear information even about who's playing on the song. It's not clear whether Grohl himself yeah, is like, drumming or whether they've 
already hired a new drummer if they have they haven't announced that there's a lot of mystery surrounding this and it seems as though that information will kind of emerge when dave and the band i suppose feel as though it's the right time to announce it but it's interesting to get the new album announcement and to get a new song ahead of any of that yeah it, the most recent picture of them all together i think i've seen doesn't have anyone new they they have not officially announced any addition to the band this drum track though sounds so much like Dave that I would kind of struggle to believe that it isn't him. And yeah. obviously there's a, a pretty long tradition of Dave playing drums on these albums. So it it's not like that would be out of character or anything. It's a really intense and impactful song. I mean, Dave's never been this, you know, super Pulitzer Prize level lyricist. But and he, so he's always had this kind of like blunt directness to the way that he writes. And that's something that I've, I, I enjoy to varying extents, basically depending on how anthemic the song is. But there is a different shade here. There's the added context of the fact that, you know, this is obviously about Taylor uh, and about the experience of losing Taylor specifically. And I mean, just looking at the track list as well, some of the song titles, it, it feels as though a lot of this, that is going to hang pretty heavy over a lot of the songs on this too. And it's gonna so it's gonna probably be very much about grieving and the process of moving on and personally, but also with the added meta context of like in the context of being in a band where you lose a member. So already just from this first single, again, just called Rescued, first song on the album as well. It's just hitting you immediately with that sense of being, you know, when you do lose someone and you're just completely adrift suddenly, you've got no you've got no fixed thing to grab onto and you're just in this suspended state and trying to figure out what the fuck is happening. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot emotionally going straight into that. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is that um, we have, and again, we're continuing into realms of slightly niche metal here, but we had the announcement of a new supergroup this week, uh, specifically a new heavy sort of math core, metal core adjacent supergroup featuring members of the Dillinger Escape Plan and Every Time I Die. That, of course, that has of course, returned. Absolutely. That, of course, being the new band, Better Lovers, who emerged from the blue with a new with their first debut single called 30 Under 13 today. This is... And I say this obviously as someone who's in the bag for Every Time I Die and especially Dillinger Escape Plan. This is one of the best songs of the year, one of the best metal songs of the year, one of the best hardcore things I've yeah. heard in recent memory. This thing goes beyond hard. This thing goes catastrophic. So the band consists of Jordan Buckley, Stephen Machichi, Clayton Holyoke. Uh, on guitar, bass, and drums, respectively. They are core members of Every Time I Die, the legendary metalcore mathcore band that broke up last year after the release of their fantastic album Radical, which we did review on the show. You also have Will Putney Hello. on guitar, producer extraordinaire who produced the last couple of Every Time I Die records and has an incredible resume of uh, metal production over the years as well. Also produced the most recent releases from Knocked Loose, produced uh, Gojira's album Magma, um, produced various records for Fit for an Autopsy and Pig Destroyer and a whole bunch of... Um, oh, he produced the last couple of Counterparts albums. Um, it's produced for, you know, basically uh, the last couple of Vane records. The list goes on. Basically, Will Putney is one of the biggest names in metal production right now. Certainly kind of building up his own 
um, resume, and he's a kind of a core part of this band. And of course, in this supergroup, you have the front man of Dillinger Escape Plan, Greg Pucciato on vocals, who seems as though he hasn't aged a day since the last. Um, I think I think all of these guys are in their forties or at least late thirties. Yeah, absolutely. And Fucking you could, nuts. You could not tell. I mean, this song is some of the most urgent music that I have heard from any of these musicians in any format. It's insane. It's crazy. It's unhinged. It's brutal. It keeps getting harder and harder. And then there was a point, I remember where the first time I listened to it, where it feels like the song is over. And then it's not. And it goes even further beyond the pale. It goes to a thrash breakdown. It's like they turn it ah. up to 11 halfway through and then the song feels like it's going to stop and then they discover 12 and it's just, it's <laughs> it's unreal how hard this goes like seriously i was I, I look what's so impressive about this is given the pedigree and the musicians on this i had an expectation going into this and i still was completely just flat my expectations were completely flattened by this thing it is one of the hardest things that has absolutely absolutely one of the hardest things that's come out this year in in any context really need need a full record so bad like kylo ran over here more more they, they are tour they are touring which does give me a little yeah. bit of hope yeah, I'm sure there will be a record. I'm sure there will be more music. It's just really exciting, and they're definitely deliberately kind of leaving us yeah, in I mean, suspense they, a bit. If they're touring, they can't just play one song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although, if they want to just like you know pretend, make it a simultaneous sort of, uh, make it a almost every time I die reunion tour, and then also just play a bunch of Dillinger songs, I wouldn't blame them. Another new music release I want to shout out, and Morgan, I know you listen to this as well, is that One Miss Angel Os Angel Olsen released a new EP. Angel, oh shit. <laughs> One Miss Angel, Angel Olsen. Oh, so, oh, so. Angel Olsen Olsen by Sigur Ross. Angel <sighs> Olsen released a new <laughs> EP uh, about a week ago. About a week ago called forever means uh, ostensibly a collection of leftovers from her last album uh i almost called it big mess but that's the danny elfman record it was called big time uh she did have an album called whole lot of mess i think or whole new mess or something like that whole new mess it's not a whole, whole lot of mess a lot of mess <laughs> one whole lot of mess never too much <laughs> anyway this new ep is stunning like my I... god it is angels kind of leaning further and further into this sort of smoky bluesy sort of 50s 60s cabaret jazz singer thing that she's kind of been heading towards and she sort of did do a little bit with big time and yeah i i, I found it to be completely arresting morgan what did you think yeah this uh, yeah this thing is very good less into the last track than the other three uh, but that's not by much. I like everything on here pretty well. The first track, Nothing's Free, where it's like fully leaning into the the vocal jazz of it all. Um, that's one of the songs of the year. Unquestionably. So, I remember putting that on and it was like, there was just something about the atmosphere of it because it's not like an attention demanding song or anything like that. But there's something about it that just felt so 
like it had me in a fucking vice as straight completely away. arresting yeah and her voice is just as powerful as it's ever been and that song just completely knocked me flat i think it's one of the best songs she's ever put out and yeah it is by far the best thing on the ep but really the rest of it's not that far behind i enjoyed the entire thing i thought it was a really nice slice of angel's kind of current mode and the biggest thing as well is that while i liked her last record i didn't love it as much as i wanted to but this really made me want to go back and revisit it and give it a second chance because i feel like it may just be the kind of thing that with this mode that she's in with this sort of much more especially coming after the all mirrors era with this much more stripped back and sort of plaintive sound I wonder if it's just the kind of thing that I need to live with and that I need to let grow on me and will really hit me really hard with the passage of time. It seems entirely possible and Angel is as has proven that she's a fantastic songwriter, fantastic musician, fantastic performer. So I have no reason to doubt her. Great EP. Wanted to shout it out. Deserves some listens. I know we are a music show. But I have said in the past, and we have talked what? in the past in these contexts about things that aren't music related. So I wanted to take a moment here to talk about the new Ari Aster film, Bo is Afraid, which I went to see the other night. Back. This was, so I went into this uh, just be, purely based around the fact that Ari Aster is one of the biggest sort of auteur, auteur figures of the last 10 years in terms of being the single figure who commands attention every time he releases something and has managed to cultivate this massive fan base purely by making very idiosyncratic films that are unencumbered expressions of his very particular very twisted worldview and so any artist like that who is just that committed to their particular brand and doesn't really compromise any way is always going to get love and attention from me, even if I don't connect with his previous films as much of as a large audience do. I still wanted to go and see this, especially given the fact that basically it's the kind of movie that every director wishes they would make. It's a blank check movie, basically, where you're given total creative freedom. You're given a budget way larger than the kind of movie you want to make would get typically in basically any time in the last 20 years. And you basically get to go wild with it. It's the kind of movie that is going to be increasingly much more rare. And you, 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 it's, it's this sort of thing as a four-leaf clover in the current theatrical environment, basically, because it is, it is a surefire flop. This movie is not going to do well at the box office. It's not really going to do that well with audiences, and the critical reception has been pretty mixed already. And all of that is feels like a natural product of what this movie is, which is a total. ridiculous personal expression of neurosis filtered through this incredibly distinctly darkly funny but also kind of repulsive worldview i thoroughly enjoyed it i think it to me it's the most i've connected with any of ariaster's films so far including his numerous short films which i mostly find to be unsufferable and unwatchable i liked hereditary a good deal although i think that's a movie that left me a little bit before at a certain point um and and never really kind of pulled me back in and then midsummer i have a lot of weird problems with but this completely sold me and i think a big part of it is that it kind of foregoes a lot of the suffocating affected gloom that those two previous movies have the sense of like claustrophobic but also kind of stagey and stilted darkness that i always found kind of off-putting in those two previous movies and just completely embraces being pure farce 
this movie is fucking funny it's stupid it's ridiculous it is surreal it is abstract it is one very dumb very like played out joke that is essentially stretched to three hours is allowed to hit the exact same punchline multiple times in increasingly silly ways as it goes along is essentially just a vehicle for some of the broadest and most ridiculous writing that Ari Aster has ever put out uh it is an excuse for him and his casting director to go fucking bug nutty and I believe me the supporting cast and some of the cameos in this are just they're you're beautiful they're just like incredible there's actors that are in this that i never would have picked to be in a film like this but just fit the mold so perfectly everything about this feels as though it is designed in a very sort of insular and self-serving way and i just happen to be the kind of person who resonates with a lot of the things that ari is serving himself with you know, it's fundamentally, it's a movie about dysfunctional family dynamics, but specifically having a dysfunctional relationship with your mother, a particularly an emotionally manipulative relationship with your mother. It's a movie. I am your mother. Yeah, it is also, and that's the thing, right? It is also, I like how you did that. You sounded more like Woody Allen than Tony Collette. That was great. It's also, Which is appropriate considering Bo is afraid. Well, it's also, this is the thing. It is a movie about that. And it's a movie that has its finger in like 500 different like previous pies in terms of like reference points. But fundamentally, the biggest reference point is Ari Aster's own previous work. In some senses, it's this kind of ultimate tribute to all of his own personal neuroses. And one of those neuroses being his sort of artistic neuroses and his sense of like protectiveness. And I guess like his concern that his work won't be that people won't like what he does and all this sort of stuff kind of all of his personal anxieties folded into this and one of the ways in which those represent themselves and it is in these hilarious deliberate callbacks to his own previous films taking some of those scariest and most unsettling parts of his previous movies and then turning them into these fundamental like jokes about castration anxiety and you know having an insecure relationship with your sexuality fear of death fear of sex fear of basically everything that having an unstable family dynamic engenders in you as a child it's a big self-indulgent mess and because i could relate to a lot of it i happen to really really connect with it i think a lot of people who don't get a lot of connection from the sorts of things that areas these sorts of grievances that Ari is airing with this movie will probably find it insufferable but also that aside it's just there's a lot of really good gags in it it's just really funny from front to back there's just great moments and great things that just if you have an appetite for if you're willing to surrender to the purely absurd for the sake of a really really good bit then you'll have a lot of just really satisfying moments in this movie this is just something that purely embraces this particular brand of surrealist nightmare logic that I completely love. I, I love the idea of a massive sweeping film with all of these just sort of tightly wound weird characters and bizarre environments and landscapes, incredible attention to detail in the production design, incredibly stacked supporting cast, all these visual reference points, all these little motifs, yada, yada, yada. And all of it is just in surface of a one big dick joke, basically. And that, to me, is profound. Uh, that that's it is the kind of movie that, or it is maybe one of the first movies I've 
scene that truly feels as though it taps into a very particular sense of humor that I have developed solely from Twitter. And that is like, it's a big monument to that and, and to everything that that Tim Heidecker core. It's something special. Like I, it, I don't think it's a masterpiece or anything like that, but it's also the kind of movie that's designed in such a way where Ari knows that not everything he's doing is going to work but he does some things that don't work purely for the sake of setting up larger gags and larger moments that do work because they've had that colossal sense of scope and scale kind of built around them. And yeah, I, I, I thought it was a really entertaining film and I enjoyed it a lot. And, and I didn't feel the three hours all that much, frankly, and I may indeed even go and see it again. So wanted to shout that out and particularly just wanted to put a call out for anyone who's listening at home because I want to hear what other people think of this. I want to hear if anyone else connected with it the way that I did. And um, I'm Morgan, I know you liked it a great deal and you're going to talk about it on uh, the First Watch podcast. I'm sure you'll go into more detail there. It's just, I this is the kind of movie that is built to have a wide range of reactions. And within our friend group, it has already started to have that range, which is really great to see, to be honest. It's great to see something that's so divisive uh, while also just being really, really entertaining and full of great bits, basically. It's one of those things that not a ton of pe- people are going to see it, at least in theaters. Um, I think it'll do marginally well once it hits VOD and streaming and all that, just because there'll be such a word of mouth around it. But no, if you see it, it is a movie you will remember for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's the kind of movie that's already getting these just ridiculously extreme reactions as well. I've already seen and been bombarded with a number of like some of the worst YouTube thumbnails I've ever seen in my life. Is Bo is Afraid the worst movie of all time? You know, and all this kind of bullshit. Sure, yeah, why not? Destined to be a cinematic flop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's um, nothing smart about giving Ari Aster thirty-five million dollars. Ari Aster <laughs> should should have just did a Marvel movie. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I want to see his Marvel movie just because I want to see. <laughs> it would be demented. I would it love would it. Blow up that entire enterprise. Like legitimately within the first 10 minutes, you would see someone get their fucking head caved in with a rock. Yeah, fucking Chris <laughs> Evans decapitated head. But that's another thing I'll say about Bo is Afraid as well. You go full that, holy mountain on this shit. Is that um it certainly doesn't stop the trend of Ariaster putting pointlessly disgusting and grotesque gore in his films purely for the sake of it. Uh there is a no, couple I, of I like there's I a almost couple... made my review uh Ariaster, please leave people's heads alone. There's some there's some images in this that oh. will will stick with me. And I gotta say, uh, I saw it in IMAX because they were stupid enough to put it in an IMAX screen for some reason. Like that I wasn't hysterical. Like a losing proposition for everyone. But hundred percent worth it. If it was just the opening sequence of that film in IMAX with that level of sound. That fucking worth every price of admission. I'm not going to explain what this means, so Jake won't know. But that fucking Gaspar Noé esque opening shot of the movie. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> like 
also just like you know speaking about self-referentiality and how area one of Arias's things is like you know doing horrible shit to people's heads it's funny how like the most horrible thing that happens to someone's head in this movie is the one thing you never see i just think that's really funny (laughs) (laughs) fucking ups guy and ari aster just makes you imagine it um it's great great movie on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I saw the new Makoto Shinkai film, uh, Suzume. If you want something that's a little bit more pleasant and not going to demand that much out of you, I'd highly recommend uh, going to see this movie. I'm a big fan of Makoto Shinkai. Really, I'm just more of a fan of your name than anything else. His kind of breakthrough picture. Uh, I-, I liked Weathering with you, but that was very much uh, Makoto Shinkai plays the hits. Just kind of the same thing you did before with some variations on it that... Some work and some don't, but this is a yeah, very a different di- kind. Makoto Shinkai plays the hits with some weird gun control discourse also. Very, very on, relieved dude? to say that Suzume has none of that weirdness in it, thankfully. This is very much just getting to the heart of, like, it, it's way less romantically oriented than his last two movies as well. It's way more about a familial relationship with uh, a girl with uh, her mother. I-, I highly recommend going to see this purely because if you see a Makoto Shinkai in theaters, it will be the most beautiful movie going experience you will have of any respective year, just because his movies are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I'm-, I'm a bit off put by how many people say he's the heir to the throne of Hayao Miyazaki in a lot of senses, because I think that reduces both artists, but in the sense that his films are a pure 2d animated spectacle that deserve to be seen on the biggest possible screen you can find them at absolutely 100 percent. this is absolutely gorgeous from front to back has an amazing uh score that i highly recommend listening to i think that the band he often collaborates with the japanese pop punk band Radwimps, actually do uh more of an orchestral thing this time Based. around which is very different than the uh other stuff before but it's great it's one of like one of the best like soundtracks to any of his movies and it's just a very i would say it's kind of his house moving castle it's a bit messy in terms of like the 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 magical realism and fantastical elements of it but it's really more of a road trip movie than anything else it takes this like the one part of weathering with you that i really gravitated towards which is where basically the characters are like completely separated from the plot and they're all on the run and that's the whole movie uh there is a despicably adorable cat in this movie that you will uh, like elicited several oh from people in the theater whenever it showed up including my girlfriend understandably so uh and it has a an absolutely bonkers kaiju battle ending that is fucking awesome and will probably make you cry a little bit so there's also that too uh go listen to the first watch podcast where i get to unpack that a little bit more i feel like the shinkai miyazaki comparison holds water pretty much exclusively in the sense that both have become pretty popular with white people. I think that's about as far as that goes. I would say that they have similarities when it comes to their preoccupations with the environment when it comes to their movies. They seem to have very similar kind of conservationist themes that erupt in their work, and both of them do very much stick to their own particular bag of tricks. I mean, Hayao Miyazaki, as legendary as he is, and I think he's probably one of the three best filmmakers to ever live, he does kind of make the same movie over and over again, but when you're as good as making... What what great director doesn't? Every David Lynch movie is The Wizard of Oz for crackheads. 
every every del toro film is frankenstein for people who like frankenstein <laughs> i don't i don't know where, where going <laughs> with that one. i think the wizard of oz is the wizard of oz for crackheads but that's just me I, I, well you know look i'm just being a dick <laughs> you're, you're right <laughs> All right, let's get into the main topic of discussion today, which is Metallica. I think uh, there's a few things I want to touch on with regard to Metallica, a few thoughts I've had throughout the week while listening to their new album. But of course, I think it makes the most sense to start with the new album. Let's talk about the new record, 72 Seasons, the first Metallica record. And since in like what, seven years, I want to say, six or seven, when was 20, Hardwired? It's, 20, it's, it's 2016, so... Seven. So seven years, yeah. First Metallica record in seven years, 72 seasons. This is ostensibly a concept record about James Hetfield's childhood, but I suppose more broadly, the difficulties of growing up, managing mental health, managing a complicated and sometimes not very helpful or healthy environment, and all of the shit that comes with that and follows you i mean james hetfield is you know he's an old man now basically it's as sad as that is to say and he is still as many old men are haunted by his younger years and haunted by his youth and james hetfield's youth and the trauma that james hetfield experienced growing up is something that <laughs> is not new fodder for metallica i mean in some ways if you want to take that sort of anthropological or psychological approach to Metallica you can see it careening through basically everything they've ever done um, but particularly certain moments in their career as well certain songs in the Black Album you know it basically became all-encompassing by the time of Saint Anger and has still repetitively been a, a well that James is drawn from and you can kind of understand why especially as, as he since he's become a father in the late 90s I think and watching his kids grow up as well and kind of being continually preoccupied with that idea and that Bye brushing that. up against the actual musical aspect of Metallica the biggest metal band in history and a band who have been the biggest metal band in history basically essentially for the last 30 years maybe 35 you know they've been that big as long almost as long as they've been a band or certainly almost as long as they've been in the spotlight in general they basically ascended above the bands they came around so quickly that the idea of who Metallica are and what a Metallica record is has become so enshrined. And Metallica themselves have had an interesting relationship with what a Metallica record is and how they approach making an album. I mean, one of the most compelling aspects of the legendary 2003 rock doc, Some Kind of Monster, is the way in which it addresses the inherent anxiety within Metallica about, well, what do we even do? How do we make a record? Do we just make the same record over and over again? The you know discomfort that comes for any artist with realizing that you don't want to do that, but also at the same time, you don't know how to do anything else. And one of the defining aspects of Metallica's late career has been trying to find ways to eschew and move away from just making the same record over and over again, but still doing something successful. I mean, this first happened with, I mean, you could make the argument at first happened with Injustice for All, but it first happened in a major way with the Black Album, and that was a huge success for them. That was a massive pivot that ended up being their best, as it's, that's got to still be their best-selling record, 
and one of the most era-defining albums for metal. And the rest of Metallica's career and the fallout of that has been, how can we continue to evolve and stay relevant while also staying true to, to an aspect of who we are that is so, so quintessentially 80s, so quintessentially tied in with that peak thrash era. How do we continue to maintain relevance? It's interesting as well, because of Metallica's huge status, It's this is, I'm sure, has been something that other massive thrash bands like Megadeth and Slayer and all that have also struggled with in their own way, and even bands outside of thrash, but in terms of just more popular 80s bands in general, new wave British heavy metal bands like Iron Maiden, all that have in their own way all struggled with how do you age? What do you do? How do you continue making music that feels essential without repeating yourself? But no band has seemed to be so consumed by the anxiety around that as Metallica. I mean, load and reload, this pivot into hard rock while also kind of trying to push their sound in these sorts of weird directions while at the same time also trying to stay true to who they were in the 80s without making thrash. That was a whole thing that, you know, listening to it back, it's a complete fucking mess. Then you have Saint Anger, which is like simultaneously this return to thrash while at the same time trying to rebel violently against some of the traditions of what's expected from that genre in ways that just fundamentally didn't land at all. It mostly results in just making a new metal album. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then not even really doing that very well. And then the, the attempt, and ever since then, it's kind of been like, cause St. Anger and everything that happened around St. Anger was so poisonous for Metallica that their entire career since then has been this, attempt to simultaneously rebound from that while still being interesting and it's this weird car crash and you look at death magnetic as well that was so positioned to be this you know return to just fundamentals metallica like let's just do what we do really really well and then it ended up being this you know victim of the loudness wars discourse and this basically unlistenable sludge hodgepodge of static then the attempt to say, okay, well, that didn't work, so let's actually team up with Lou Reed and do something that purely embraces artistic freedom and creativity with Lulu. And then the response to that being maybe even more venomous than the response to St. Anger. And eventually the pivot back to hard to trying to, to really trying to refine the core classic Metallica sound with Hardwired which seemed to work for them. You know, the record sold really, really well. It wasn't, it was well received in a broad sense. And it seemed as though for the first time in maybe 25 years with that album, Metallica had done something that wasn't controversial and didn't prove to be this massive headache for them. And so, you know, touring cycles and life cycles later, Metallica returned to the well with 72 seasons. Jake, Morgan, tell us, all that said and done, what is 72 Seasons? How does it sound and, and move on, I suppose, in comparison to Hardwired? What's your take, essentially, on where Metallica are at now and how the Metallica sound lands in 2023? Uh, 72 Seasons is a modern Metallica album. That's all, folks. Hey, look, we were we were pretty. I feel like when we discussed Metallica in our discovery video, we were broadly pretty positive on Hardwired. So, and I know that you know not to forecast too much here, but I know that you both 
are considerably less positive on this one in comparison. So what's happened? Where are Metallica at here in comparison to there? What's what's worked versus hasn't worked? And, and what's the issue with this album to you? Well, there, there's one thing I feel like I should start with. Just a, a point I want to make off the bat is that the only album released by Metallica since the Black Album to be less than 75 minutes long is Death Magnetic. And that album is 74 minutes and 54 seconds long. Stop. We had this exact fucking problem with the last Megadeth album. And God help me, I basically could say everything I said about the last Megadeth album for this. And the only reason I think this is just a just a smidge better than that Megadeth album is because I like James Hetfield more than I like Dave Mustaine as a vocalist anyway. I think that as a performer, James is fine on here. He's still not really, you know, we talked about how he kind of Black Album Onward dude kind of turned into a parody of himself vocally. And that doesn't necessarily translate to him being bad, but being very expected, I guess. And that's very much on here. Really, the biggest umbrage I take with this album, other than what Morgan led off with smartly, that being God bless stop making these albums more than 70 minutes please i'm begging you i hate that the biggest problem with this album to me is the writing and like and i know people and i'm sure even riley to some extent you're probably just like why did you go and do a metallic album expecting the writing to be good i think that's a much more interesting problem to have than it's just too long because we've been down this road before and i want to know what makes this well so has fucking metallica like yeah but this was this was i i know it was it was one of the issues we had with hardwire was that record was too long but it felt like it didn't that wasn't something that got in the way of listening to the album as much as it does here and i want to know why that is it's because this the album this is the most similar to to me isn't actually hardwired which a lot of people have like been talking about as being like it's hardwired too to me this has more similarities to death magnetic in that it yes it sounds better. I really wouldn't say it sounds that great, honestly. I feel I still feel Much, like the drums. The on same here. problem with Hardwired is that it's all too clean. There's like not an ounce of dirt on it, any of these last two records. There's just no grit, and I feel like that that's something essential that you need for these songs. That are again, they're all hovering around the five, six, seven minute mark, and like. Look, I I know that some people are fond of some songs on here, but like this album wrong footed me immediately with 72 seasons in that like I get the the I get the appeal of this song in theory, but to me from a writing perspective, which feels like it's way more at the forefront here than it is with their last couple of albums this is james falling back into the saint anger trapping like fucking immediately the whole thing with the title track here is traumatic dogmatic volcanic psychotic and he just repeats this fucking vocal hook that rhymes over and over again and this song just keeps looping back into first gear over and over again and like yeah the riffs sound fine yeah this is one of the better paced song on the album but i still can't get to a point where i actually enjoy it 
And then the rest of the album is exactly like this, where they just, they keep writing these things that I feel like they're trying to harken back to like the Black album, where they kind of balance the sort of heaviness with the hooks. And they 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 meet the centralized point where it has a kind of, you know, widespread mass appeal, but also it'll appeal to people who want the the, the harder edged stuff. But the thing is, is that there's no this is an album that doesn't fit any niche. It's just, it, it is so occupied with tunnel vision of being a Metallica album, just a Metallica album. There are not any moments on here, like, for example, you know, the last album had all-timer greats, in my opinion, like uh, Moth to the Flame. Like, it had its moments where I'm like, yeah, I would put that up there with the rest of the canon of this band, happily. But but the the rest of the stuff on here, I mean, the best thing this kind of gets is stuff like Lux Eterna or The Closer in Amarada where I feel like all of the best tendencies of this band at this point kind of coalesce into one point, but the rest of this, lyrics, riffs, every part of it just feels... <clears throat> stock. Well, here's some here's... stock. It's so stock. I think that this dovetails really nicely with one of the other big sort of topical things in music discourse lately that being ai generated music uh and and there's a an ongoing discussion right now i mean we had a, an album this week like an ai generated oasis album that kind of fully emerged out of the ether really that like that was like actually legitimately like you know it would fit solidly in the middle of their album discography ranking was the general <laughs> consensus <laughs> liam gallery that is on it, so but... fucking dystopian i have to laugh at it yeah and there was also a thing where um someone uploaded like an ai generated drake AI, drake, drake and the weekend, weekend song yeah I heard collaboration that. that eventually had to get taken down so we're going to see a lot more stories like that and i think that it's going to be the yeah. ai generation in music is going to be the new like covid in music you know in terms of like this oh, God. ever-present topic that hangs over so much of the the atmosphere and, and the, the lyrics and all that sort of stuff, I think. Uh, so we need to kind of prepare ourselves mentally for that. But here's the thing is that Metallica have kind of throughout their later career, like I said, they've explored all these different avenues of trying to be the same, but different or different, but the same. And they've never really found a technique that works. I mean, I guess they got it with hardwired, but at the end of the day, like, while that record, when you listen to it in the context of the Metallica discography, there's something refreshing about seeing them sort of sharpen and have a better sensibility for their strengths than they had in a long time. It's also the kind of record that doesn't age very well either. Like it's the kind of no. thing that has diminishing returns the more you come back to it. And you do kind of come sort of you brace the eventual point where you're like, is any of this necessary for me? Am I? Do I have any real reason to revisit any of this above and beyond, you know, the classic 80s stuff? And I think the Black Album is, you know, Lulu aside, which is its own, on an island, really, to me, is so distinct for everything else. Oh, yeah. But the Black Album, to me, is the last Metallica record that really has any... I suppose Load and Reload have this in their own way, but the, the Black Album is the last album that works, that has this sense of range in any meaningful way to it you know yeah. it's not really something that metallica 
have really tried since the load reload era and maybe as a result of the attempts at range on those albums being mostly abysmal there have been a couple of songs on those where metallica do something really different that, that i like but a lot of people didn't like them and metallica have kind of resigned themselves from saint anger onwards to everything they do must strictly exist within one mode and so everything that they do is one mode of Metallica. Yeah. Okay, we're committing to doing the new metal-esque thing with no guitar solos and this really industrial grind drum sound, which is the most charitable way of describing it. And we're going to do that for an hour. Move on. We're going to do this, you know, take it back to thrash and do this, but make the edges a bit harder and make it try and sound a little bit more modern. And then that's going to be our thing. Then we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's just each Metallica record is one is an expression of one creative idea for 80 minutes and i don't so much have there's no any... counterpoint on any of these albums at all yeah and, well, and I, for me the length thing is like definitely something that weakens the end product because it creates this feeling of oversaturation and it creates this feeling of exhaustion but it's not even like the biggest issue i have i mean i didn't even like i wasn't thinking about it as much while listening to 72 seasons and maybe that's because as a metallica listener i've kind of come to expect that and it's the sort of thing i've just sort of made peace with that yeah whenever it ha a metallica record happens it's going to be too long whatever just approach it aside the fact from that the matter is if this was 20 minutes shorter it wouldn't be that much better that's a good point that basically is getting at it and this is the thing right is i am in conflicted states because and this is something that, to me, the, the record this reminds me the most of in so many different ways is actually St. Anger. Like, yeah, you know, pure production and sound-wise, it's a lot different. And it's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of the big overarching, you know, headache-inducing problems that that record has. But so much of the sense of stasis that this record represents, and also the sense of, like, Hetfield leaning into something genuinely really personal but not really knowing how to express that in a way that gets away from that sort of cartoonish form of expression that defined classic thrash in the 80s that worked in that context but doesn't work here anymore like hitfield really only knows one way to write and it's great for songs like you know fight fire with fire ride the lightning fade to black master of puppets battery it's great for that and it's just not great when he's trying to expose something more direct and it's not to say there's not emotion and rawness and, and personal struggle on those 80s metallica records there is but it's never really pretending as though like that stuff has context and there's things about the things that make those early metallica stuff that the things that make that early metallica music more than just satisfying on a primitive level but actually like meaningful and tangible is stuff that is secondary almost in a way to the main appeal of the music whereas when james is kind of bringing that personal struggle to the surface he only has one mode of expression for it it's a mode of expression that he's tried and done a million times by now and so he's stuck into this corner basically where he is essentially repeating of himself while at the same time trying to unpack something more meaningful and, and something more powerful he's, he's going to a well that has been completely dried up and just clawing at the soil basically and and taking the bricks out and and, and 
the result is something that simultaneously is more is made to be more personal but feels so much more anonymous and i agree with you jake kind of like an ai generated sort of thing where it's like there's nothing actually distinct here even though it's given this framework you know 72 seasons a whole childhood my whole upbringing all these things i've encountered all the ways in which they've fucked me up it's given that whole framework but there's really nothing distinct about it he just wrote the unforgiven 12 times again and this is the thing like for their whole late career they have been so focused on doing the same but different different but the same this is the same but the same (laughs) right like it is (laughs) it is packaged to be something about a particular thing that has this distinctness to it but none of that really manifests on the album itself i feel when i'm listening to it that i'm given i'm presented something that and then what i'm actually experiencing is just not really that at all like maybe in a very basic sense it's that but i i i feel no i gather no great insights about james hetfield that i didn't already have and for an album where that is the ostensible concept and that is the ostensible selling point that's just a fundamental failure that all aside musically i think it's as good as i could hope i mean i i think there's yeah, it's fine. Issues that it has, I'm sure Morgan, you could probably speak to them a little bit more than I could. It's not amazing, but it's functional. And that's okay. But there are moments that I, I did find genuinely animating. I think it starts and ends with its two best tracks, uh, particularly the closing track I, I really enjoy as well. I think that's one moment where it's being a longer song in the album, where they find a kind of sense of purpose and they, they really know how to like pull you in and then kind of give you a great final bow basically but everything in between feels entirely interchangeable and kind of blurs together as this just soup essentially it's like metallica are all about image and about selling a product i mean they just bought their own vinyl plant we talked about that earlier this year they're all about product they know how to present themselves they know how to manipulate their image they know how to play on aspects of how they're perceived and then i had to use that to sell records with their fan base and everything is positioned and presented in this way and then you actually get the product itself and it's just dead air like there, there uh, is, just, is metallica no turning me. into weezer no oh, I, okay I think, I slow think that, down i think that weezer and rivers cuomo is far more dedicated to actually trying to do different things than metallica are anymore like Metallica fully resigned themselves to this one template, whereas Weezer, mm. I look for as much as I hate the last few Weezer records. There's a thing with Rivers Cuomo where you really just don't know what he'll do next, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that's a fucking that. threat in that context. Yeah, it is, but it's at least it's something, right? Like, no, 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 I'd rather. I, have I mean, nothing. I guess I, I, I guess I just kind of disagree because I never. F- find any of rivers deviations from his formula to be substantial enough to be considered different or unpredictable it's all just the same shit sure yeah and that's the fundamental flaw of the music itself but i just there's there's always something to talk about with weezer there's always a grand narrative that they're trying to do and there's always something there's always even when it's in the case of those eps and and the things i talk about are the most catastrophic failures of those songs there are things i remember and there are things i can talk about i can't talk about the music on this album I can't. There's nothing to talk about. I'll start by saying, as a sort of counterbalance to the 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 James Hetfield 
takes on here. He's certainly not doing anything new or novel or interesting or approaching this material in any revelatory way. I just find it all very charming at this point. Like, like anticipation, mid-aturation. Like, yeah. like, when he's like, let's see Turner. Like, yeah. Like, we are so back. Yeah, that, we, exactly. Lux Eterna is the best song on here to me for that exact. I mean, also because it's three minutes, but it's just it's all of, of what makes James still feel like he's got power this late into his career condensed into its most effective form there. Yeah, I think the best thing that I can say about Metallica as first, like sort of cookie cutter as the compositions and structures of these songs are everyone with one substantial exception feels (laughs) really vital still. Like they're giving it their all considering their current abilities and that they're really enthusiastic about the work. It feels like as on as he always is vocally here, whether or not you find the writing all that interesting is um, that is what it is. Lars has the same three drum beats that he's had for every album for the past 25 years um and that's really the thing i think ultimately kills the everything in between the first and well almost everything but most of the stuff in between the first and last tracks on this album is that this is every song switches from those same three beats and one of those three beats is like the beat that in every ACDC song. So it's just like, I don't know. There's like no, there's no dynamic range here, but I don't dislike any of it. It's just a matter of how, how thin everything is spread here. Like, I think even the songs that I really enjoy, uh, with the exception of Lux Eterna, needs about two or two and a half minutes shaved off of it. Um, I think, the amount of songs here is yeah. just is perfectly fine. Uh, the songs individually pretty almost uniformly need trimmed back to some degree. So it's nothing I dislike, nothing particularly that offends my sensibilities, which I guess is sort of a victory in and of itself. Um, what is what is Kirk Hammett doing? The answer <laughs> is nothing. Turner, yeah, Luxie Turner <laughs> kicks ass until you hit the solo which is the most just like did you even like wake up to record that mr hammett that is the sloppiest shit i have ever heard put to a record like can you can you tighten the screws just a little bit like i it's it feels like the first it's the first take at a solo it sounds like the first take at a solo of a legendarily skilled guitarist and they just and he just did not bother to do any refinements or alternate it so, it recordings like of it he wasn't present for the sessions at all and they just cobbled together the solos from like old like bits of sort of you know the the, the studio equivalent of b-roll uh, like just old yeah. bits of like you know noodling around and just kind of patch them together like oh is it in that key okay put that there (laughs) yeah basically what's more likely is that what's more likely is really that metallica have set themselves in a lane that they designed purely to not fail 
Mm-hmm. Even though that doesn't mean that that lane leads to success. Like they're, they are purely, they just know how to do something that won't upset people. And that's it, precisely the road that they are hell bent on going to- down it's... towards. I'm not trying to say that, like, I'm not trying to come out here and defend something like Saint Anger, but I really can see in retrospect the things that people latch onto about that album that are distinct. Like, again, the snare sound is something that, like, has kind of been reclaimed by a lot of people as being something that like, like I hear backwash on Twitter, one of the most vocal advocates of the St. Anger defense squad saying that she would love to sample the St. Anger snare in like a beat that she would make or something. And like from an industrial hip hop musician, from that standpoint, I I understand why there is an idea you can latch onto. Mm-hmm. It's what makes this so frustrating is that, you know, 20 years from now, nobody's going to reclaim this album. Nobody's going to reclaim 72 seasons. Nobody's going to latch on to the ideas because they're misguided or or weird or or out there. There's nothing to be like, there's nothing to be reclaimed, I guess, which is a problem in and of itself. The only times I'm compelled by late com- career Metallica is when I sense that there is some kind of danger, basically, in, in, in whatever they're doing. Uh, some kind of danger. Yeah. Like, I don't, I, like, St. Anger is a terrible album, but there is, like, a sense with which they are deliberately doing things that, whether they know it or not, and I feel like to some degree they have to, are not going to be embraced by everyone. And then this is doubly true of Lulu. I mean, this is like what Lulu is so emblematic of everything that this is basically is that, that that's the best post black album Metallica album, because it is the one that feels like it takes the most yeah. calculated uh. risks and veers the most from the template while still allowing all core musicians in the band to actually show the skills they have in the context of doing basically what is a, an elaborate art project orchestrated by, you know, the guy who fronted the velvet underground. That's, interesting and that's and and but, but metallica having failed in that as as far as they're concerned as far as the the public are concerned although they have in interviews still see that they're very proud of that album you know i hope they genuinely are because they should be that regardless of all of that they have basically settled into the state now where they're essentially they're done doing those kinds of things they're done taking those kinds of risks they're they're too old to do that and they're basically settling to make music now that is just enough to pass like a musical Turing test, just enough to seem human, just <laughs> enough to pass a musical capture, basically. And there's just enough to feel as though it's not AI generated. That's their aim, it seems like. It is just enough to be perceived by Metallica fans as, yeah, this is Metallica. That's all. That's the only thing that this record needs to to pass is that, yeah, this is Metallica. This is my Metallica. As long as it can hit that very low bar for the broad, like range of fans who essentially come to their music for that immediate thrill and nothing more, then that's all that the record needs to be. And on some, in some levels I can see that being a fine goal, but just certainly for us, certainly for, for people who, love Metallica's best work and will them to continue challenging themselves and pushing themselves and doing things that show they actually do have range in their strengths. It is depressing to see them refuse to try and lean into that range, refuse to try, refuse to try and do those things. And even in a kind of anxious and anxiety inducing way, 
rigidly stick to like as few no, as a smaller set of templates for what they can do as possible and that's really fundamentally what 72 seasons is i don't even think it's a bad album it's just there's so little here it is designed to simply sound like metallica and nothing more than that and that is kind of sad to me so my perspective on this naturally is that i don't really disagree with anything you're saying i also just will take like three or four more of these before these guys bow out forever then i would rather have a more creative or exploratory side of this band where nobody sounds like they are having a good time that is the problem with load and reload and saint anger all three for me is that no one and pointedly with saint anger no one wanted to be there. No one wanted to be making that music. They just, it's just yeah. like, I mean, in terms of phoning it in, that is like, this is, this 72 seasons is kind of phoning it in. And St. Anger is like phoning it in, but also sending a letter with a bomb inside of it. It's like a willful act of stop making me make music, which, is the interesting between anger and lulu like lulu is an yeah. album that i feel like is it's lulu and saint anger are considered similar levels of disastrous by most people and i feel like the reason we latch on to lulu is because you get the feeling everybody wanted to be there like mm -hmm. they they enjoyed that yeah well this is the thing like metallica time and again have come up to this irreconcilable distance between the artistic impulse that i think all three or excuse me, Robert Trujillo's kind of just there. That yeah. all that every member of the band has this idea that you make music because Lesson. you're an artist. They come up against the this distinct disconnect between that and between the fact that what the vast majority of people want from them is not artistic expression. It is this very predictable and very straightforward thing that they've done before and can do. And there's no real way for Metallica of reconciling those two things anymore. They have tried to push in both directions. They've tried to bring both directions together. It has failed. And so they have elected to stick in this one lane. And that's fine. And their fans are going to enjoy this. And it's going to be perfectly serviceable. And I can completely see, Morgan, your perspective, where that is the preferable outcome than the, the calculated risk that, you know, yields something more obviously a failure or whatever but it's just this is why i have such a distance from metallica is that i personally don't find much in that philosophy um and it certainly results in a record that i could take or leave and i've said this before it's kind of like one of my biggest cliches is that the worst thing an album can be for me is straight down the middle where it's just not really failing or succeeding all that much at anything uh, that to me is the antithesis of of like what i what animates me the most and so that's kind of where metallica are at i 100 percent, if the opportunity arose and if it wasn't prohibitively expensive i would 100 percent go and see them live and i would 100 percent see well, that, them play that's, songs on this that's it. i would i would yeah. enjoy that like. experience but they are just fundamentally not an album's band for me anymore and it yeah. is this you know and it does feel as though this exists purely in a perfunctory 
way to you know facilitate that touring and i wouldn't have a problem with that except for the fact that it's kind of presented so half-heartedly in this way as an artistic statement and i'm just like don't pretend that this is a profound record about you know james hetfield's trauma and all that kind of shit don't you know just be realistic here and and call it like it is and just say it's a bunch of guys having fun doing the thing they've done together for several decades because it's a fun thing for them to do and and maybe just keep the album i want to hear it for like the one or two songs that i'll keep around but yeah it's it's also just like i i just don't know if i could (laughs) mentally and emotionally take a 60 year old James Hetfield and company doing something as embarrassing as St. Anger again. Like I just, I, it, that is far more depressing a possibility to me, even though it would make for better content. I feel like one thing we should appreciate about Metallica in in, that's somewhat lost just because we are so distant from their golden era is that, you know, they do kind of deserve to just rest on their laurels. Yeah, at that's this point. that's another because thing. This band went, they went through a lot, and that was, I mean, like beyond the fact that, like, when they were in their heyday, you know, they lost one of their bandmates, and they like essentially like the fact that they were still a band after you know Cliff Burton died is a miracle. The fact that they made anything worthwhile past that is another miracle. And you know that wasn't the end of their tragedy. They were all you know they were all drinking a lot. They were all doing a lot of drugs. They did not have a particularly great time. And you know that that's what led into the 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 fallout of a lot of Saint Anger. Just at this point, I feel like Morgan's standpoint, even though I usually would err more towards the. I don't like see the value in making long, boring albums that don't give me anything at this point. But if one band deserves to just kind of exist and be perfunctory and be boring and not care about the album format anymore, I'm okay with one of those bands being Metallica. Mm. That's the thing yeah, as I mean, well. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's this album. They're fundamentally in this good place and that's great. We want them to be, but it also, it just leans this, additional air of like complete ineffectualness to having songs like screaming suicide or whatever you know, songs about like all of these screaming you know, suicide all these or whatever things. yeah my feelings towards opeth these days are very similar uh they obviously never stooped nearly ever as low but it's like when you make one of the best five album runs of all time you can do whatever the fuck you want. I'm not going to be happy about all of it, but I'm also not going to be all that mad. Yeah. Like, yeah. Something, yeah. Something that's Unless I'm, like listening to St. Anger again, and then I'm going to be pretty upset with whoever so, did that to me. Something that's <laughs> emblematic. I think of like um, my whole, just not necessarily issue, but just sort of like bemusement with the way this has all been presented is like, in the press notes on Apple Music for this album, the very first sentence is psychology, biology, and astrology all have tenets based on the seven-year cycle. Get the fuck up, Zane Lowe. That's are those fucking like is that a fucking lyrics? That's like he's things that James Hetfield run like psychology, astrology, 
yeah, I don't want to dismiss the fact that James probably does, and, and the members of the band probably do see what they do as artistic still, but that there is just this in- huge dissonance between that and because I what one thing that some kind of monster fundamentally proved to me is that even when they clearly are having a shit time making an album and don't particularly want to be there there's still this calling that art has this sense with which everything we must do must have this purpose behind it we must find meaning and we must be able to find that meaning within ourselves to make the music in the first place and then knowing that that effort was put in and then hearing saint anger this album that feels as though it's completely shallow in the most sort of empty of ways you know just betrays the fact that yeah sometimes the artistic impulse and the artistic drive and the artistic output can completely just miss each other altogether and yeah and just thinking about like saint anger and it's I guess, lasting impact. I don't particularly want to relitigate our feelings on the album itself. I mean, it's very clear how we feel about that album and we don't need to talk about it anymore. But like, it is interesting to think about it as an artifact and how a lot of people are approaching it now. A lot of younger people as well who are not necessarily approaching it as Metallica fans, but are approaching it as people who I have a fascination with, you know, these particular artifacts of different places and times in music history that were received in a particular way or that represent you know a particular extreme basically and and the way in which that is inspiring artistically to a lot of people who want to kind of push again push into tastelessness and kind of push against the boundaries it's interesting the way that album has stood out as a reference point it is funny to think of the idea that you know going in the next few years St. Anger may well be one of the most influential metal albums of the last 20 years on a lot of the music that we talk about and a lot of the music that's getting made and that that might in a weird way be a good thing that artists might find that 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 album can be good for something I suppose that artists can find in that deeply tortured and fundamentally misguided creation uh, something that resonates and i can see that i can i can see that in the abstract certainly not while i'm listening to it but to me that kind of pure audible suffering that james hetfield is experiencing on that record the sense with which he is completely begrudgingly making all of this but also at the same time releasing this deep-seated rage and and sense of disdain towards basically everything and everyone around him i can see how that resonates with a lot of artists nowadays even if in the context of metallica listening to that is just painful it is just really really upsetting yeah i mean it's just you could just listen to slipknot's iowa which has literally all of that but is produced by ross robinson and goes hard yeah that's a good point actually there there's also i feel like there's a a direct kind of something that makes that a little bit less abstract in comparison is that i'm not gonna say that this is like it's not super direct or anything but i've seen this label the label in question being the flenzer who if you don't know is a label that specializes in you know very left of the dial industrial kind of rock music you know have a nice life uh chat pile etc etc the kind of spirit of saint anger does kind of live on in stuff mm-hmm. like chat pile i very can... ironically mind you 
but I still think that there's certainly something there that you can draw a direct parallel to in music that we actually do like, engage with, enjoy. It's just that St. Anger exists in a place where it's just not designed to be what it is. And now things are designed to be that and can repeat that formula in a way that makes sense. Well, what's interesting about St. Anger is that what it is, its whole identity and the things that it does are, fa- are like are interesting and can work, but just don't work when Metallica are doing them. It's yeah. a, a record yes, that's, that's what mis- I mean. It's a record that's the, where there's a fundamental mismatch between the point of the album and the things that make it, I guess, compelling and the band th- that are doing it that are complete are at a complete mismatch for these goals and for these ideals. I, I reckon if you the ask band him, and Bob Rock <laughs> and Bob Rock, who is the George Martin anyway, so he's Metallica. That's a very depressing thing. I can't believe I just said. Uh, anyway, but I, I bet if you ask Chat Pile, and I bet if you ask them what name the five biggest influences on God's Country, one of those would be Saint Anger. I can totally hear that coming through. It's just that it has a that that energy and that spirit and that darkness has a context that makes it something greater than the context for direct Saint Anger. direct parallel between James Hetfield's delivery and lyrics and. Why do people have to live outside? <laughs> we yeah. have the resources. We have the means. Yeah. I, um, mm. yeah, I, uh, <laughs> oh, last thing I want to say is I just visited the, the, um, the Rate Your Music page for St. Anger and in the comment box, someone has written man, dick, 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 cock. And that is the most prof- funniest and most <laughs> profound thing that i've seen is that, that, is that man august i was afraid 2023 august? directed by ari aster <laughs> man dick 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 cock I was, I was just gonna say the one last thing we need to talk about is the fucking album cover to 72 seasons and why it's easily metallica's worst and that i think your friends yeah. is saying something I think that the, the <laughs> failure of the album cover is maybe the most profound failure of the entire album. Because when you think about what the point of yeah. this record is, it is to move units. It is to be bought on vinyl. It is to be owned by Metallica fans. It is to finance, not that they need to finance, but it is to continue to finance their lifestyles and their tours and all that sort of stuff. And when you look at it, when that is your primary goal, which it is, and Metallica would be shallow to deny that. You have to produce something that people would want to physically buy. And when you have this fucking just banana yellow backdrop to this broken, exploded baby crib, you know, in some senses, it's like this album cover would be really fitting for a much different, much sillier, much riskier, much dumber Metallica record than what you actually got. Like, well, I guess that's kind of also true of Hardwired as well, because that's a fucking funny, ridiculous album It's like Hardwired gave them a license to be like, let's let's just do whatever, because if we can get away with this, we can get away with fucking anything. The album cover promises something very stupid, and then you listen to the album itself, and it's very earnestly trying to be like you know, legitimately tortured and angry and, and, and serious and all these kinds of things. And it's like, dude, you just put a, a a blown up baby's crib on a yellow album cover and you put a, you put your, you just, 
did a graphic design is my also passion. did did the baby explode is that what happened because everything's charred and black is that what happened did the baby just baby's gone no more baby baby fall down <laughs> baby fall down <laughs> this whole album is james hitfield saying i'm baby it's I'm, I'm it's cut that from the video first of all uh but i am backtracking the worst metallica album cover is still hardwired to self-destruct that's like yeah that's but also, fair also i think that's the one i would most want to put on my wall <laughs> at the same time because <laughs> it's just so fucking I... funny we got so much out of just ripping the shit out of that album cover and all of its variants like that's some of the most entertainment that Metallica have ever delivered you to know, me. You know, I Metallica's album cover track record is just like I was saying, like Jay, the best one's got to be "Injustice for All," right? That's a pretty good one. I actually think that the Lulu, I, ride I think the, the Lulu album cover is really good too. Um, I I think "Ride the Lightning" is obviously a great album cover. "Master of Puppets" is a good album cover. Um, They're good, yeah. "Injustice for All" is really good. I don't know. I don't know all all of, all of those first four fucking kick. Yeah, they do. Kill, I'm not... kill, kill them all is more like it's almost more in spite of itself that it, that's just the album. Yeah, itself I was gonna is say so kill them all is a little. That... I'm still I'm still disappointed in them for not sticking with middle up your ass or whatever the original title was gonna be. Yeah, it's yeah. I think yeah. having an album called Middle Up Your Ass really? with a fucking sledgehammer on the cover would be, or wait, was it that was that the album that was supposed to have the where the original art was supposed to be legitimately like someone on a toilet, the toilet. stabbed up? Uh-huh. No, it was the it was the yeah. the fist coming through from That's the toilet. Right. Yeah, yep. That that if that would that would that would yeah that would be fucking funny as fuck today if that actually existed. I was saying to Jake the other day that I think the Death Magnetic cover might be like one of the better ones from the latter era because it's just much more I like it, honestly. evocative. And also like that, when you look at that, you can tell this album's going to be brick walled the fuck because that's just a really yeah. like claustrophobic and just sort of it's like, like it's texture. staticky uh, like album cover. Coffin. I would, I tell you what, speaking of Death Magnetic, I would probably give this album, I'd bump this album up a little bit if they actually had put the Unforgiven 4 on it. Like, we want the continuation of the series, guys. Let's go. I would drop it a full star. Thematically, that is exactly what it is, though. Like, they just didn't call it the Unforgiven Part 4. Like, you can find that song on here um, in its lyrics. Yeah, but it's not a shitty fucking ballad. Yeah, they, they would have thank had, God for that. The God that failed again. I'm not saying I want the Unforgiven Part 4, but this album would have gotten a lot more mileage out of me if they had tried to throw like a ballad in there just to like spice things Ugh. up, just because well, it is like you like, kind of you kind of get give me that some variation. The, you kind of get that with the sort of clean vocals towards the in the last track, uh in like halfway through the last track, where it's like James switches it up and he's doing this sort of soulful <sighs> thing. I actually quite like that. That kind of just took me a it's, second to adjust. Yeah, to. but it's like it, it's too the, little the, too the late, last right? Song in Lux Eterna, I like. It's too little too late. You can't be pulling that shit in the last minutes of the last yeah. song on your seventy-eight minute album or whatever. It's like, you know, no, so by I'm that just, point, I, it doesn't matter. After the Unforgiven Three, I am banning acoustic guitars from the Metallica recording studio. Can't do this anymore. Nothing really I dislike here, but. 
you must burn is pretty fucking lame. Stop talking about witch hunts, man. Uh, it's just it's it's too close to your it's... old pal Dave. Yeah, I was gonna say that's exactly what I was gonna say. Leave the dog whistles to Mustaine. Like you don't need yeah. to do this. <laughs> no, the "Don't Tread on Me" is right there on the black album cover. It's the it, it looms. It's anyway. James Hitfield being like, "My pronouns are hail Satan." <laughs> that's okay, but hard as fuck. <laughs> I would have loved that if it popped up on the album. <laughs> That's that like that's incredible, actually. Um, <laughs> My pronouns are also now "Hail Satan." I don't really have a least favorite song, but I do want to say that um, if "Darkness Had a Sun" is maybe <laughs> the is maybe the worst song title of all time. It's so good. Not just because <laughs> it's a very <laughs> very stupid thing to say. But also because <laughs> it's an attempt at making a pun. You know, if darkness had a sun. Oh, God, uh -huh. I didn't even... Uh, it's all coming together, folks. Sit. And the thing about a pun, Sit. Mr. Heatfield, is that a pun... I pieces fit. A pun, requ a pun requires the two different meanings. Like, a pun requires two different meanings. If darkness had a sun... <laughs> With with a U, that has meaning. But if darkness had a sun as in a that doesn't make sense. Darkness is not an organism. Darkness is a band. No, <laughs> the darkness. If the if the darkness had a sun would be more meaningful than if darkness had a sun. <laughs> Lars Ulrich is currently force choking Riley. But even then, oh. if the darkness had a sun, still isn't that meaningful because the darkness are not an organism either. They are a collective. But they could they could still have a sun in a more meaningful sense than darkness itself. Anyway. Just listen to the rhythm of the whole. I can't believe that was the angriest a new Metallica album made us. Ah. Uh. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Good to be talking about Metallica. And maybe, may we never do it again. We'll probably be in our thirties the next time they release one. What we can do when they do that is that we can like deliberately like rehearse and restage word for word this entire review. I think that would be some some real Tim Heidecker shit where we just do yeah. everything thing all i actually no it's nathan fielder we'll yeah, do a rehearsal but with this yeah we do a nathan fielder the rehearsal except we just we just do this video we don't even update it with the title of the new album either um <laughs> we just do this again <laughs> anyway let us know at home what you thought of the new metallica album and what your thoughts are on metallica and 2023 in general want to hear from you want to hear your takes as well are you one of those saint angler reclaimers or are you not whatever Smart. <laughs> or do you have if if darkness had a brain oh <laughs> let us know what your take is on metallica in 2023 in the comments below if you enjoyed this video that please the darkness give gives good brain if the darkness gives a thumbs up on this video and subscribes to the channel, do that. 
It'd be really funny if this album was called Metallica in 2023. Just full of Phil. <laughs> that's, that's the next album, Metallica in 2030. The next album is just going to be, it's going to be an 80 minute Metallica album, but it's going to be one song and it's going to be like the same riff for 80 minutes with, with James Hetfield doing spoken word every five minutes or so, talking about in 2003, I went to rehab. August will 11 out of 10 it. Yeah. You know what's funny is that like Metallica could not do Wh- Wind's poem, but Mount Erie could do. Uh, I'm trying this. I don't know. I had something, but I lost it. It's fine. Phil Elbrow. Would outside. Mount Erie ever do this? Just <laughs> say they could. I don't know. Um, Wind's poem is a heavier album than Metallica made in 25 years. So always it be the quiet ones is wind's poem just a fart joke let us know what you thought of the new metallica album in the comments below seven two seasons are you pro are you against where do you fall in the debate on metallica in 2023 want to hear your thoughts in those comments if you enjoyed this video please consider giving it a thumbs up or subscribe if you haven't already both those things help us out a lot if you want to go above and beyond and support us you become a member of the jam t family for just one dollar a month by hitting the join button getting your name in the title call of every video on this channel plus if you want to recommend us some music to talk about and in, in our now episodes your recommendation will go to the top of the pile as always though folks until next time rock over london rock on chicago Old Spice. If your grandfather hadn't worn it, you wouldn't exist.